Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, folks. So tonight, or maybe this morning, depending on which time of day you're tuning in, I have quite the fabulous hour ahead of us because I have none other than Amy Dudlock, M-A-C-C-C-S-L-P. 
Katie Joyner Robinson, MACCC SLP, and Brittany Schultz, MACCC SLP, who are three speech language pathologists with over 30 years of combined experience in various settings, ranging from pediatrics to adults, Midwesters born and raised, currently raising the next generation, which, fun fact, has a whole lot more tallywhackers than not. And can I get a drum roll? Y'all, they are the brilliant voices and women behind the Cup of Counsel podcast. So if you haven't turned in yet, you need to do so ASAP because this podcast brings together women, moms, friends, SLPs, and therapists, and many more to talk about topics that are fun, difficult, um, emotional, Shell can't say that at the end of the day, but also fulfilling. Their episode topics range from girls' trips to speech-language feeding development, guest interviews on a variety of topics, and just are all-around hilarious conversations that you don't want to miss. So one, finish listening to this episode of First Bite, and then two, go fill your cup with them anywhere you tune in to get your podcast, because they are there. So huzzah! But on today's episode, today we're going to talk about airing our dirty laundry, so to speak. kind of sort of through a series of case studies. So we're going to pick away at our own weaknesses and our strengths. Because remember, it's through our cracks that we shine, but negative self-talk is frowned upon, so do have to put the strengths in. And y'all, we're going to talk about our struggles and solutions faced in the world of early intervention, working with preschool population, as well as within the bustling world of a hospital, all through case study analysis. And again, we're doing it all at an hour with four SLPs. So this is going to prove eventful. I am so grateful that the world of Instagram, when it's not hacked and down, does allow us to connect with wonderful, amazing people. So Amy, Brittany, Joyner, thank you all so very much for coming on today. Thank you so much for for having having us. us. Thank you. Hi. Okay. So let's start alphabetically because that seems like a logical OCD anal retentive way to go. So (laughs) um, Amy, you're up. How, how are you a speech pathologist? What made you want to get into this? Tell us the things, ma'am. Well, in one of our episodes, we go into more detail about this, but I had a kind of a rough college experience where I just had too much fun and I needed to (laughs) narrow my focus a little bit. And I had gone into college thinking I wanted to be a nurse, didn't do so well with some of my prerequisites. Then I thought maybe I would want to be a teacher, but I didn't want to manage a whole classroom. And some wonderful advisor helped me find an intro to communication disorders class. And I took it and I loved it. And it was a good kind of mixture of the medical side of things, but then also the educational side of things. But I wouldn't have to be in charge of a whole group of small humans. So I loved it. And I, yeah, it took me a few tries to get into grad school. We also have an episode about that because it took me three consecutive years to get into a graduate program because I'm a terrible test taker. And But I persevered because this was the career that I wanted for myself. And here we are. What has it been, ladies? Like 11 years? 11 years? 12 years? I don't know. Goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Since we graduated from grad school. And yeah, I still love it. That's awesome. 
I distinctly remember taking the GREs to get into grad school, walking outside mm-hmm. and boofing in the nearest bush. And then the <laughs> guy that was checking people in and out was like, a lot of people throw up in that bush. And then years later, <laughs> after the praxis, I threw up in the exact same bush. And I was like, wow, a lot of people do throw up in that bush, or at least I do. So like, yay, that's anxiety. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel that. <laughs> okay. All right. So I believe in alphabetical order. The next is Brittany. So Brittany... What made you want to be a speech pathologist? Yeah, that's a great question. I didn't know what speech therapy was all through grade school, high school, and even, I guess, a year into college. I went to school and thought I wanted to do special ed or maybe just regular ed. But I think, I don't remember if I did a course or just checked out the courses and something in my gut was just telling me it wasn't right for me. Same with Amy. I wasn't sure I wanted to take charge of a whole classroom of students. I really just wanted to do more one-on-one. And I knew I wanted to be creative, but I also wanted to have a little bit of that medical side. But I hate blood and bones breaking and anything to do with that. So I was trying to find this balance between like nursing and teaching, if you will. And so my advisor was amazing. And props to her. She really guided me directly into this field. I did the intro to communication disorders class, which at the time was being taught by our wonderful, I think she's now the head of the department. She's a dean of something now, but she was actually doing the intro class and phonetics. So I took them at the same time. And I think I am one of those strange SLPs out there in the world that loves phonetics. And I am one of those people too, that I have never been very good at school. I had to work really, really hard to, you know, get B's, I would say. And phonetics was the first class I ever took that I was, I felt like really good at. And I really loved it. And it seemed that was hard. That hardest class. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It just clicked. I can still like transcribe anything really quickly. I, all my interns I have, I'm like, you know, it's so important to know your IPA and how to transcribe. And, you know, it's a foundation of our field. And so I just knew it. I knew what I was in phonetics that this was for me for sure. And then around junior year, I was like, oh, you have to get a master's in this. I guess I'm going to be in school for a while. So I kind of feel like (laughs) I feel like I was I'm the kind of person where, you know, the advisor is like, take this course. I was like, okay, let's do it. And in phonetics, I'm like, okay, I love this. I'm going to be a speech therapist and oh, I have to get a master's. Okay, let's do that then. (laughs) So I love it. It's my passion. I love going to work and seeing my patients every day. And, you know, a job is a job, but this is the best job. So I'm super, super happy with it. Yes. My professor for my phonetics class was from the Midwest. She was from Wisconsin. This is this counts as Midwest, right? I think so. Yeah. Right. Yes. But she does her vowels different than how... Southern women pronounce vowels. There yes. was not a lot of diphthongs. And so I, that was the class where I was like, I can never, I to this day don't know how I managed to get through it because you know when like they say the word and then you transcribe it back, but like you're saying it over in your head. Inevitably, oh, yeah. I would turn every one of her like short vowels into a diphthong. And um, yes. the world is not built on diphthongs. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, yeah. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked in the South and then I think I live in the part of the Midwest that is actually a very neutral accent. I've heard that before. Are you in Ohio? No, I'm in Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. So I'm in a weird part where people north of us, 
kind of have a different dialect than just south of us. So I've heard before that we're like a super neutral accent here, but who knows? That's what I think. I have worked in the south and I have had, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about what your professor was sounding like. That's how you learned IPA. So super interesting yeah. way to think about it. Yes, this is why I transitioned to feeding and swallowing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. we'll just go with that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right. So then Joyner, what got you into this? Yeah. So my story is a little bit unique in that both of my parents are speech pathologists. So right. I, yep, I was since the day one have been around it. So my dad was a speech pathologist that owned his own practice. And my mom was a speech pathologist who did birth to three for the county board and was more in the school system. And so for me, I was raised with both parents being speech pathologists. And on days like school, we didn't have school that day. Maybe there was a snow day. It was like, all right, get in the car. You're going to go do home visits with us. (laughs) So (laughs) I have been around it my whole life. Um, And my parents were, you know, they built really good rapport with families. One of our families ended up being like my babysitter <laughs> when mm-hmm. when I was younger. And then other families, you know, would come to my their clients back in the day that they were really close to would come to my birthday parties because I would become close to some of their patients. So mm-hmm. I kind of was around it from the get-go and would go do therapy with them and really enjoyed it. It was just what I was used to. So I did try to kind of get away from it. I went in as an education major in undergrad. And just like Amy and Brittany, I got a job at the campus daycare and was a teacher in one of the rooms and quickly was like, yep, nope, this is not where I want to be all day. I give it to and teachers. I think they are fabulous. But I was like, you know, I think I would like to be with the student or with the individual for a while and then take them back and then go see somebody else. And I also really enjoyed the fact that I could work with all ages across multiple settings. So I went ahead and it was inevitable. I switched back to speech pathology and majored in that in undergrad and then went ahead and did it in grad school. So that's how I landed here. I have definitely used my own children for therapy as well as for practice when I have the students on campus that need to practice administering standardized assessments. I bribed the boys with Legos. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was me. That was, that was, was your voice. Uh, well, um, uh, your parents are amazing for letting you be tortured for delightful, as opposed to you know, I mean, speech therapy. It's not totally. It was like I remember but, going to yeah. home visits with my dad and like the positive reward at the end was like, you get to play a game with Katie. Like it was. was (laughs) (laughs) So I can vividly remember these things. Yes. So Uh, I was your boys in that case. Yes. The only catch is Bear Nose is cute. So I have to watch the six-year-old for flirting with the 20-some-year-olds. And yeah, that's great. When Goose was four, Aaron was my grad student because Aaron co-hosted with me. And you know, she was over at the house. She had just finished up her practicum. It might have been like the semester after I was her supervisor. And she came over for dinner one night. And she was homesick. Bless her heart. Goose went to hug her goodnight. And when he went to hug her, he like tapped on her side boots. And he was like four and a half. And I was like, Rylan Augustus, you cannot touch those. And he's like, I like 
they're squishy. <laughs> and Erin was like totally deadpan. She was like, that was literally the most action I've had since grad school started. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, uh, now he's nine and still likes to, I mean, he knows not to hug ladies in the boobs, but now he can change his voice. They're like, oh God bless. Okay. All right. So we're going to segue through all of our different case studies. And I want to highlight, share your case study, but then let's pick it apart from what were the strengths and the weaknesses? Because, I mean, women, we're prone to self-deprecating humor. We're prone to thinking the worst of our experiences, right? Because negative self-talk in social media sucks, right? Blah. But it's through our case studies that we also can see how we've grown, what we did right. Y'all have worked in such, and y'all work in such varied settings, but they all overlap. So I like how the progression goes across the life continuum. So Amy, I thought we could start with you with parent coaching and early intervention. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So just a little background. I was in private practice for about six years before I switched over to the school system. And in Minnesota, where I live, the early intervention birth to three program is taken care of by whatever school district the child resides in. So I know it's different state to state, but in my state, you a referral is sent into a central location, and then that location divvies out the referrals to whatever school district, and then we get the referral and we go out to the homes and, and do the evaluation and, and provide services until they, they turn three. And then if they still qualify, they transition into preschool services. So I went from private practice where I was used to having kids you know, come in my little sterile therapy room. And the parent was a lot of the time not in the session. And this also, I want to point out, was prior to me having my own kids, my approach as a clinician has changed significantly (laughs) since having my own kids. So I would like, I was this fresh, nice little SLP, like take the kids back, do my thing, come out. I'd tell the parents a couple things that they did. They'd leave, they'd come back the next time and, you know, hit repeat. So then I went to the school system where I was doing birth to three in home services. And I actually had to like see the parents and like talk to them. And I had to be in their home and see their environment and figure out how to, you know, talk to other adults who were caring for the student. I wasn't able to be as like one-on-one direct with the child, which so it, it was a complete shift for me to come into that setting. And it was a struggle for the first couple of years. I felt like, what am I, like, this is way different. How am I going to be effective? How am I going to do this? And actually at the point I entered my program, my the district that I work for was kind of in a shift from going from bringing a toy bag and sitting and trying to work one-on-one with the parent watching, like working with the child with the parent just observing, and then packing up the toy bag and leaving, they were in the process of like getting rid of the toy bag. And now it's I've been there for about seven years, and we are completely bagless. And we – Yes! Yes. And so that just – the whole shift has been a process, and we're currently going through – some pretty heavy trainings with EQUIP, which is evidence-based quality intervention practices. And that's by Dathan Rush, who is an SLP, and M. Lisa Sheldon, who's a PT and ECSE teacher. So Minnesota has adopted their program, and we're getting all these trainings from, from these people. And it's all about parent coaching. And it's about routines-based early intervention, really focusing on the parent's priority, asking reflective questions, learn, you know, learning about different adult learning styles, you know, we didn't 
I didn't learn in grad school how to teach adults. So this is like a huge shift and it's been fantastic though. Like now that I am on the other side of it where we've been doing it this way for a couple of years, I definitely see the impact that it can have on a family. And of course, not every family is appropriate for that approach, I guess. We still have, you know, parents who are not as engaged. And then it's like a puzzle of trying to, how do we get them engaged? How do we find out we lead into their priority? Like, what are they interested in? Can we connect with them in any way over anything that they have an interest in so that we can help them help their child? And so it's been this like constant balance of like, how do I make a connection with a parent? And I recently have just kind of like had a light bulb of like, this, my job now in the current setting I'm in is less about my connection with the kid and more about my connection with the grownups that are raising them and building trust and a good relationship so that they trust me and my, you know, things that I'm telling them to do or that we're kind of coming to a conclusion together on like how they can help their child and finding a priority. If we don't have that foundation, I'm just this professional coming in telling them all these things. Are they going to, you know, follow through? They're not unless we have like a good connection. So I don't know. My job has changed so much over the last like seven years. It, But now that I'm like in it and I see the benefit, I really do enjoy it a lot. I want to hug you so much right now. So like, please have felt that (laughs) through the freaking universe because you just, yes. Okay. So folks, we were all taught and I think I'm older than all of y'all, like given like fabulousness of the photo that you supplied as well as like (laughs) the time spent career wise. But When I was in grad school, we were taught direct service delivery model across all ages in all settings, right? And what we know in the field of early intervention and what we've actually known for the last 20 years, it's just taken that long for the research to transition. And that's Mm -hmm. what you hit on. You were in it for six years and then had this change within the last seven to like the practice that you're seeing now. And Mm -hmm. I think I got the timeline straight, but yeah. That's it. Exactly. That's the 20 year lag time from research to best practice. And so bless them. The researchers have been out there like, but this is what we're supposed to be doing. And then mm-hmm. us in the trenches were like, but I'm really good with my super cool back. Right. Yes. And yes. Yes. So when I've heard of, can you say those researchers or the presenters name that y'all just adopted their model? Because I've heard of them before. And yeah. Like, I, yes. It's Dathan, like Nathan with a D, Dathan Rush, R-U-S-H, and he's an SLP. And then M apostrophe Lisa, and her last name is Sheldon. And she's a PT and also has an early childhood special education license. But they, I actually get to hear them. It's a virtual training on October 27th. Our district is, it's actually available to any districts that are participating in this innovation. So you had to apply as a district to be a part of this evidence-based quality intervention practices innovation. And it's a five-year plan of like all these trainings and coaching and all sorts of things. And so because our program is participating in that, we get to actually go to a training with these two people who created the whole thing at the end of this month. It's virtual, but I'm really excited to hear them. That's so cool. Yes. Yeah. There's one out of Florida, the family guided routines based yes. intervention out of Florida. Yes. Woods, Dr. 
Julianne Woods. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. She's one of the, for lack of a better phrase, the fairy godmothers. Yes, (laughs) she is. And actually, Minnesota was using, so the abbreviation for that is FGRBI. We were FGRBI initially in the first two years of this innovation, and now we're in year four, and they kind of switched last year to this EQUIP model is the acronym for Evidence-Based Quality Intervention Practices. So I don't know the reasoning behind why Minnesota chose to shift from Julianne Woods to this other model, but there are lots. I mean, it's very similar. I think this focuses to me a little bit more on the reflective questioning and really like I've been talking with an OT friend of mine who I work closely with on a lot of these home visits and we're like, how do we rephrase our questions Because the whole point is to like have the parent come up with the solution or the idea. Mm -hmm. And we have all this knowledge, you know, like we went to school, we have experience, we have knowledge. We know like we go in with a plan, like this is what the child needs to work on. I can see it with my eyes. Like I know exactly what they need to do and I know how they need to get there. But if the parent doesn't have any buy-in or have any, they don't have a part in that decision, then the likelihood that they're going to follow through is slim. And so it's like, all this training on how do you ask reflective questions and switch how you're talking to the parent and how you're trying to get them to come to the conclusion. It's kind of like a mind game a little bit. (laughs) Like, how do I get you to come to the conclusion that I want you to come to, but it needs to be your idea so that you feel empowered and you're going to follow through, if that makes sense. I don't know if that makes sense. but Yes. Yes. It's stakeholder buy-in, but you have to plant the seed that they... You know who's really good at this kind of stuff? My husband. (laughs) <laughs> really, really good at, Hey, I want to do this house project, but like, but should we do this house project? Or maybe we should make this the next house project. And then like somehow or another, like I freaking come to the conclusion that like, <laughs> we'll do the thing that he wants us to do. And then he's like, yeah, did you like how we did? I'm like, that's crap. <laughs> but professionally, I may or may not do that Monday through Friday and sometimes all the weekends. So like, okay. <laughs> okay so If you had to pick one of your favorite, wait, fact, folks, it's really hard to transition to bagless therapy. Mm -hmm. That would be the first step. Leave your bag in the car and only do therapy with what's in the home. That's step number one. If you make Mm -hmm. it through that hurdle, which feels insurmountable when you're in it, you're halfway there. Then it's open asking the open-ended routines-based interview questions, which that's hard to learn. But I promise if I could leave the bag of tricks in the house, so can you, and then you'll get there too. But do you have Mm -hmm. a favorite resource or recommendation that you would give from all of your training and all of your learning? Oh my goodness. I mean, all of these training modules have been pretty good there. Of course, I'm not going to be able to recall these things off the top of my head, but they're <laughs> um, Leah Curtin. She's an SLP, K-U-R-T-I-N. She was like my first introduction into bagless therapy. She had like a mini course. I don't know. I took it maybe four years ago and I downloaded and paid for her $40 binder on Teachers Pay Teachers. And it was a lot of really nice um, parent-friendly handouts on like here, you know, taking a routine of the day, like getting dressed and breaking it down into, first of all, different language levels, depending on where the child was cognitively. And then also like, here are some receptive things you can do within this routine. Here are some expressive things. Here are some sound imitation things. Here are some social skills. So I did, and I of course can't remember 
the name of the resource, but that was something I used a lot in the beginning because they were really easy, like bite-sized chunks of information for parents and they were Mm -hmm. relatable and broken down into, I mean, it was everything from like going to the grocery store, brushing your teeth, cleaning up after a pet. Like it was all these tiny little, anything you could think of that would be like a pretty common routine for a toddler. Mm -hmm. She had a half sheet handout that you could give to a parent and then discuss, you know, that routine and kind of help them narrow their focus a little bit. So that is one resource I used a lot in the beginning. Now it comes a little bit more. What is her name one more time? Because you just answered a question. Oh, L-I-A is her first name, Leah. Curtin, K-U-R-T-I-N. And I know she has a Facebook page I follow, and she's had a couple of courses, and she has a lot of Teachers Pay Teachers resources and things on her website. But Beautiful. I've been um, – oh, Facebook is still down. Bye, bye. I've been um, – <laughs> I have a couple of students that were trying to get them to work through the Epic 5Q model, but how mm. to transfer that over into home-based activities – and mm. they're being seen in the outpatient clinic. And sure. you just answered something that's been keeping me up at night. So oh, well. thank you. No problem. <laughs> that's, that's cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, also, I just looked at the clock and realized that, like, you and I could talk all day about EI, but... Um, course, uh, I could um, talk Brittany all day about this, but, yeah, we should... They're still here. They're just <laughs> muted. And you okay, know what? Hi. I have to say, it's very rare that I'm the one doing all the talking. It's usually Joiner. <laughs> Michelle, you are, like, making her whole day that oh my you gosh. gave her that much airtime. Oh, yeah. And, oh my, and was- she gave me... The goddess, Michelle Dawson, gave me a virtual <laughs> hug. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, that's so funny! Ah, uh, the boys. Somebody somewhere was like, "That's Michelle Dawson," and Goose was like, "Mom, what do you like actually do?" I was like, "I analyze poop and vomit for a living," but like every once in a while, it's cool. And he's like, "That's so weird." Mom, <laughs> like, maybe cool on some nerdy girl planet, and like, so thank you for thinking that I'm cool and not just a poop person. <laughs> You are cool in our nerdy girl planet. So, yes. Yay, beautiful. Oh, I'm so uncomfortable right now. I'm blushing, but thank you. Yes. Okay, wait. Amy, final parting thoughts on the world of sure. EI. Lay on this what? If you had, any, if everybody was listening right now, what's one bit of wisdom that you could wish that you could share with? I think one thing that has been really helpful because we are so hands on as SLPs and we want to have that direct time with kids, we want that one-on-one interaction and we want to kind of be able to like wave our little magic wand that we pull out of our pocket and show the parent our skills is to model something maybe that you know that would be beneficial if you're having trouble with a parent like narrowing their focus, model something, but then uncomfortably, which it takes a while to get comfortable with this, but then asking the parent, do you want to try? Are you comfortable trying? And then letting them do it and then asking follow-up questions like, how do you think that went? Or what would you do differently? And trying to get them to kind of reflect on their interaction with their child and then making a plan for the next, you know, however long it is between visits. Like, what do you want to work on for the next two weeks or however long it is in between? So I think that was that's kind of where I'm starting to become more comfortable with like modeling a strategy or something, but then kind of telling the parent, like, it's your turn. It's your turn to do it. And 
the results that I've gotten from that have been so much more than just me doing something and hoping a parent was paying attention and gets it through osmosis and then knows how to apply it themselves and knows what it feels like to do that specific strategy with their own child. You're right there and you can provide direct feedback and answer questions in the moment. So that's how we should be using our time. That's that's those are my last nuggets, I guess. <laughs> I love all of that. Folks, that's what she just said is so easy to say, but so freaking hard to embrace and do. So if you're there on the cusp of it, hang tight. Also, I have so many other follow-up questions, but we have to hold those. <laughs> okay. <laughs> let, me, let me, I know. I'm like, cool. Okay, wait. So it's Brittany. So Brittany, you're in outpatient, right? Yes, primarily outpatient. I do cover inpatient from time to time, but my main role is outpatient. Okay. And it's outpatient tiny humans, correct? Tiny humans, yeah. Pediatric hospital, children's hospital. Every once in a while, I mean, y'all, wait, it sounds like Amy might be in Minnesota. And Mm -hmm. where are you in? I'm in St. No, that was. Yeah, in St. Louis. Louis. Yes. And then Joiners, Ohio. Yes. So y'all don't really like get referrals within the same network area per se. No, we don't actually. No, I do see (laughs) quite a few patients from all over the world because of a particular doctor that we have related to CP patients and surgery. So I have done really interesting evaluations with kiddos from the Middle East and all over the world, really. So that's kind of exciting. That's amazing. Okay. Now your specialty is apraxia. And yeah. I just have to give a shout out to, I believe Rose from Alaska is probably listening to this episode. So Rose from Alaska, I found you a kindred spirit that also has firm faith in root cause analysis for apraxia in pediatrics. So Amy, you just made Rose's day. So thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) Or wait, no, Brittany, you made Rose's day. But (laughs) talk to us about... What have you learned in your lifetime with working with little ones with apraxia? Yeah. So I like to say I specialize in motor speech because like we kind of mentioned earlier, we're like, hmm, this diagnosis of apraxia is so interesting. You know, when we were in school, I think it was 11, 11 years ago, it was discussed that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sorry. (laughs) But, you know, when we were in school, I think we were, Amy and Katie can correct me, but we were told apraxia is not a thing in children. And I still feel like it very much is a thing, but it's like, there is so much we do not know about it still. And I've had my own theories for a long time. And it wasn't until a recent course that I took by Carrie Ebert that I was I like, love her. okay, yeah, oh, she's, she's her. great. She's great. And she drew this arrow like with an arch and it said started like at one side of the arrow, it said suspected apraxia. Then it moves to apraxia or motor speech. Then it moved to phonological. Then it moved to articulation. And I've suspected for years where I'm like, I don't think it's like three separate tiers of our tick than phono or apraxia. It's not like one of those. So she drew that arrow thing. And I'm like, that's what I've suspected forever. So I feel like all of my patients are somewhere on the spectrum And it's no longer like they just have an artic or is it phono or is it apraxia? So my thing is I always say I'm 
you know, I specialize and by specialize, I mean, I take a lot of continuing ed that hones in and focuses on motor speech and apraxia. So I've just kind of found that I love that population. I tend to get the kiddos that have been in therapy for a while with no progress, or they're coming to me from maybe a really small town and they haven't either haven't had services before or their therapist is not sure what to work on anymore. Uh, they're maybe f- between the ages of like four and six. That's my favorite. I love when those severe, severe artic slash apraxia kiddos come in. So what I have found in my particular location is I do see a lot of kids from small towns pretty far away. People come to the city for an assessment to take back to their town. And so I was getting these kids coming from far away and they said, and I would communicate with the SLP back in their hometown. And many of those SLPs said, we don't either don't have access right now to go to a course, you know, what goals should we work on? So I I do a lot of education to the outside SLP. And that's a huge part of it is making sure we're all on the same page and a team for this patient. So what I ended up doing is kind of informally creating this apraxia or sorry, motor speech intensive, if you will, because I do see kiddos who don't have the apraxia diagnosis, um, just severe arctic phenology. So because I had this one family that came from about three hours away and the mom was like, hey, can we just come for like a month or two straight in the summer? We'll come live here, see you every day and then go home. Can we do that twice? I'm like, that's a great idea because that's what we should be doing with these motor kids is bursts of therapy. You know, we've always known that short, frequent bursts is what is beneficial. And if the SLP at home doesn't have that availability to see them, we have to figure out a different plan. These kids cannot go once a week or once every other week and do 30 to 60 minutes and then go home. Like they need intensive rehab, especially when you're already four or five years old and you're not intelligible. So uh, yeah, that's kind of how it came about with one of my patients. And from there, I kind of built up the program. So I've been doing it about four years now, I guess. I took last summer off and it's been really fun. I think we all took last summer off. I'm yeah, just saying. Right. But it's <laughs> yeah. really hard in general, but like yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 2020 was just, yeah, wash. It did not happen in 2020, but no. <laughs> you're right. Lots, lots of things didn't happen. So I have revamped it and I've taken little pieces of lots of my trainings and kind of made it my own. I've also done some research and looked at other programs that do intensives. We have a craniofacial team at the hospital and they do intensives. So I chatted with them and got an idea of like what their parent handout looks like. I have a list of criteria. I've edited that criteria a few times now and I think I have honed in on what the ideal patient for the intensive looks like, which is really important because I have done it with kiddos where I'm like, who an intensive is not going to work for um, this particular child. Yeah. So that's been interesting to figure out. And then as I, I do it in the summer. So as the year goes on around fall, early winter, I try to pick out a few patients that may be appropriate and start discussing it with the parents. How much would they be interested in the program? Could they dedicate time to it? It's a lot to come every day for multiple weeks in a row. The other big thing is insurance. Can we get appropriate Mm -hmm. coverage for their visits? And I am just going to say every patient I have done it with has had, thank goodness, insurance visits. And not one of my patients has ever missed a session, which I think is incredible. So 
that's a miracle in and of itself. It is. I mean, one of the, I've done it differently every summer, but in 2019, I think I saw, I did four kiddos and I did four weeks, four times in the week. So that, what is that? 16 sessions in a row. We're not, we're SLPs. We don't do math. And they have not, not one patient has missed it. And these parents are, they're cutting their hours at work. They're adjusting their schedule. They are driving hours. They're living in our city for the week and going home. They are getting people to watch their kids. I mean, I kind of playing off what Amy was saying, like, this is a family approach. This is not just coming to see Brittany work on your stuff and go. The parent is there, not the whole session with me, but they're very involved in the homework. They know what to take home. They know what we're working on. The outside SLP is involved after, so I can help her create her plan of care and carry it over. So I've really, really enjoyed it. It's definitely, I kind of, I just do it on my own. I don't really have any help with the scheduling and whatnot. So it can be a little bit stressful in late spring when I'm figuring it all out, but it has worked out. And all of my patients have made a lot of progress, which is really exciting. And I look forward to it every year, really. So yeah, so it's been great. What you just described was being a living embodiment of implementation science. My very lovely coworker and friend, um, Dr. Rebecca Wada, that's what her PhD dissertation was on, was mm. implementation science. And she's a speech path, but it's all about how you constantly reassess how you take in new data points, how you take in stakeholder buy-in with parents and schedules and pandemics. And you went to another course and then you like, that is what we are supposed to do professionally. But oftentimes we feel so overwhelmed that we're like stuck and we can't like not to quote Disney, but like maybe to quote <laughs> Disney, we're afraid to take the next right step because mm-hmm. it's just, there's so many variables, but mm-hmm. you clearly know how to do data analysis. So math may not be your numbers, but like people <laughs> variables, you're quite very, I mean, well done, ma'am. Well done. Cause my attendance is not that good, <laughs> but like, <laughs> yeah, well, um, this is for my intensive, not for my other outpatients usually, but no, it depends. <laughs> it really depends. But, you know, I do notice on that note is like, you can kind of tell maybe when sometimes when you're not going to have a lot of buy-in or, you know, you can kind of feel when the relationship is not right. And maybe there's a lot of cancels or no shows. And that's when I really like dig in like, Hey, you know, why don't you come back for the, you know, the next month I want you in all the sessions and how can we, like Amy said, I often tell parents like, okay, can you show me what you're going to do tonight? Or let's pick four words that you're going to say during, do you want to do dinner time or bath time tonight and practice those? So yeah, it definitely is. It's taken a lot of practice, but that's the most important piece is the parent and the family, the family buy-in. So I've had really great families. Yes. But like, do we see the trend like this whole, God, the notion of us going from 100% direct service delivery as we were taught, like, well, for you guys 10 years ago at grad school, but for Mm -hmm. me, like that is so antiquated. And it's scary to say it like that, but the common trend is how do we talk to parents? Um, Now, one thing that you hit on and Amy hit on earlier, like when we have a hard time with the coaching case or we're having a hard time, like the parents don't seem engaged in the sessions, that's where I have to put on my hat for the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. 
where is this family and what is pulling their mind away from the present? And mm-hmm. what I found is often, often there's some unspoken worry, like another family member was diagnosed with cancer or my hours were cut at work. I'm worried about like, how am I going to pay this bill? And I have one mom that's doing everything she can, but she's currently going through a separation, most likely a divorce. And she's worried about, you know, co-pays for treatment. And that does impede her ability to engage because she's stressed out about, you know, being able to pay for the therapy. Right. So that's, yeah. Yeah. It's so important to meet these families where they're at. Mm-hmm. I tell my families, you know, they'll text me, hey, we're running late today. I got them from school. There's a lot of traffic. And I always tell them, I'm like, even if you give me 15 minutes, I know it's an hour and you're supposed to be here for your four units. You <laughs> are here. You're making the effort. We can do a lot in 15 minutes. You know, yep. it may not be the most favorite thing for you know, getting all my units in, but it's what like matters for them and for the patient. And it's not easy to get them to these appointments. Like Amy was saying, when I had my son, I was like, oh my gosh, I am stressed like getting him to his like little peds follow-ups. And I just did an intensive last summer where parents came for 16 sessions and all these parents like worked full time and totally different perspective. But yeah, you have to meet them where they're at. And it has to be, it is a team approach. I feel like I am just now kind of coming into that a little bit more because in the outpatient world, it can be harder when you're not going into their homes. And I feel like our whole team at the hospital is just getting getting into that groove of like, it's a triangle. It's you, the parent, and the patient, and we are a team for that patient. So, yeah. The no-tube approach. It's no-tube dot com no tube.org i don't remember which one it is because one is a tire company and one is a feeding tube dependency clinic so like <laughs> if you type them in like you're gonna find a tube of some sort but yeah. their entire methodology is caregiver driven and all forms of communications must go through like the caregivers own copy for like all interprofessional practice team partners members and how different I mean, critically assess how you talk to your families versus how do you talk to the OT on the case about the child when the family's not there. And then imagine filtering that. Unfortunately, most of us would completely change our conversation and like how we would hold it. And Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Now there's a couple of physicians that I may or may not change how I would hold the conversation with the physician. Um, I mean, I work in the South and sometimes because I have boobs, I don't have a brain, but you know, sexism, mm-hmm. we're making an impact in the 21st century. I think it might be getting a little bit better. A girl can dream. <sighs> yeah. Okay. So um, also, I'm so glad you talked about Carrie Ebert because I just adore yeah. her. She's great. I just did her. She has one on, oh, it's one of the very few that I found on like birth to three population for suspected apraxia. And she says that a lot in that course. It was online and it was great. I, I mean, all of her courses are great. I've seen her multiple times since she's you know near me in Missouri. But this one particularly focused on, I think, the majority of our caseload where we're like, okay, it's great. We have all these approaches, you know, prompt, DTTC, rest, like all this stuff. But all these things are like kids have to sit there and imitate or, 
you know, let them touch your face or whatever. And I love all those courses I've taken and they've all taught me a ton, but I feel like the majority of my initial referrals are those little guys where you're like, hold on, what, like, where do we start? You know, you're kind of running all over the place. And so this course is really, really good, especially if you're in the diagnostic position in our setup at the hospital, we have diagnostic SLPs who do the initial assessments. And so I I went back to work the next day and I was like, Hey, all you evaluating SLP should take this because she really breaks it down into a nice hierarchy of, you know, what you should look at and target for those suspected motor kids. She's so, so good. And I have her book the by her and David Hammer. So I really appreciate all the new research and legwork that she's doing and that a lot of other people are doing in the field because I've gone from apraxia is not a thing in kiddos to it very much is a thing. There's something that's different and we need this research to be out there. We need the help because we are just not taught this in school to an extent. We ha- You have to go to, I just did a presentation on my intensives at work the other day and the end of it was everybody always comes to me for apraxia help, which I love to help with. But at the end of the day, you just really have to do your own legwork and find appropriate CEUs to take and kind of teach your way through it and figure it out and take multiple approaches, you know, never just, just one and one and done. So. Yes. Yes. One class does not make you a specialist. Also, I, so I always get the least of these. So I get the kids with like 400 different etiologies and Mm. they all overlap. And when we have followed up, with genetic testing or with neuroimagery and my children that came to me with the diagnosis of CAS, I mean, I would be treating, feeding, swallowing and another comorbidities, but um, or trying to get an AAC device in play. When we got them in for imaging, we would find on the MRI an old infarct or we would find um, dysgenesis of the corpus callosum. We would find absent cortical tissues. I mean, there was always... Mm -hmm another entity, another variable going on. So can I just add that if y'all have a little one on your caseload, please do dig a little deeper because a lot of times what I found was that if you're suspecting it, especially in the early intervention world, you might completely change their overall outcome with that new additional medical information. Yeah. 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 Yes, definitely. Yeah. I mean, for some of the kids, we ended up going from like, progressive to like palliative so mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh that sounds so doom and gloom but yay <laughs> for summer intensive programs yay <laughs> summer intensive <laughs> um, yes and bear did not have apraxia but he definitely had some very interesting phonological processes and i'm glad we fixed the lateral lisp because there's only so many times he could say come shit with me and he might come sit with me and yeah you're like yeah bobby i'm almost gonna come sit with you sit. <laughs> yeah uh, lots of um, naughty yeah. words in the speech room naughty words uh, yeah yeah it's great and then you're supposed to adult and keep straight face i cannot yeah Again, right why i don't treat this <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, oh my stars okay all right so then we're going to segue over to the fabulous miss katie also known as joiner okay now you told me before we started but does everybody in the world know how you go from katie to joiner I think we do say it in our early episodes of our podcast, but I will go ahead and tell everyone. So 
Amy and Brittany and myself, we all went to the same graduate school. That is where we met. I am thankful for it every day. And we had multiple Katie's in our class. And so we went by our last names and mine was Joyner. That was my maiden name. So I have always been Joyner to them. It was not a big change for me. I played sports in high school. So I was even known through high school as Joyner just because I was a basketball player. And that's what everyone called me then too. So it was fitting. And it's very strange to be in this realm and to be with Amy and Brittany and hear my name as Katie, because I don't think they have probably in the 12 years we've known each other, they've maybe called me that five times. So it is very, <laughs> very funny to hear them say Katie. So yes, I have always been joiner to them. And that is on our podcast. It's confusing to people because everyone's like, I thought that was you. And I was like, yeah, that's what I go by with them. So that is how I got the name joiner. That's awesome. We Back home, they call me spit because I look just like my dad, except I get my mustache waxed. So like, oh. <laughs> and so like the family, the family motto is, yeah, baby, that daddy, he just don't spit you right out. <laughs> oh, my, I love that. We really have thick accents. <laughs> like, oh, yes, I love that. Somehow going by a last name would be better than being called by spit or Michelle because <laughs> I put on the, there's freshman 15 and then there's grad school 40. And so I put on the grad school 40 and. <laughs> So my one nephew called me Moosh out like a cow and that that also stuck. So oh, like no. uh, oh but we all survived. Okay. Now you you have a completely different element to add to the table. Your clinical case studies has to do with social communication programs for adults. And when we started talking about this, all I could think of was my sweet special needs brother in law. So talk to him about that. Yeah, sure. So I currently will give a little bit of a background. I currently work in uh, a school system with preschoolers, but for a majority of my career, I worked in a nonprofit outpatient clinic. And one aspect of that clinic was I got everything. So we had developmental therapy, which was OTPT and speech from birth to whatever age. And then we also had adult day programs at this clinic. We also had 20 residential houses for adults with intellectual disabilities. And we also did behavioral health for the community. So and this is in Ohio? This is in Ohio, yes. Wait, are you closer to like Cincy? Like, where are you? Like, I'm up north on the north end of it. Okay. All right. So it is, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to work. It was the place that I worked actually really as my first job for the first six months out of grad school. I worked in a nursing home and then we moved nope. to Ohio. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to Ohio and I got this job at this nonprofit outpatient clinic. Honestly, I can tell you it was the best thing that could have happened to me career-wise because since there was such a wide range of people that I had to see, I got to dive into a little bit of everything. So I was constantly researching different areas and working in areas that I don't think a lot of speech therapists get the chance to work in, and that includes adults with intellectual disabilities, and it was a very wide spectrum. So... I was, my given day was like, we had contracts with virtual schools, for example, who they needed speech service to implement their IEPs. So we had that contract. I had outpatient little ones coming in that were just delayed talkers. And then 
I would have on my caseload that I would then also go to our alternative learning school that we also had at our clinic. So for older kids who maybe behaviorally, the school district was like, you know what, we can't handle this. We're not equipped to do this. They would send them to our clinic and we had an alternative learning program for them as well. So I would have to go and implement their IEP goals. And then on top of that, we would maybe have, you know, a resident who is coughing with what we frequently see coughing a lot. And they're like, call Katie. So I would go out to the (laughs) residential house and then have to do a solo about maybe. And then for our adult day programs, one thing that we would really be doing is they would be working on their workplace skills, you know, because it was a wide spectrum of abilities. So you had some individuals who were able to maybe go out in the community and work, or maybe you had individuals, we had some really great programs and companies that, and there's actually, and it's escaping my mind right now, but there's actually a guy who was on Shark Tank and he created this fruit bar and he hired our adults in our programs to like do the labeling for it. And so we- Yeah. And we had an OT who was fabulous and she created a lot of different job programs. So we had individuals that were working, you know, in the day programs. And then we had individuals that were going out into the community and selling things like they would, you know, they started making hats or they had to sell the fruit bars. So we had individuals that were going into the community to also do jobs. So I got the pleasure of working with a speech therapist. Her name was Michelle Gunther. And she was really Wait, how do I know that name? I don't know. Oh no, this keep talking. I'm gonna do the Google. I know I know her. Okay, can t- she's a speech therapist in Ohio. She was also my CF supervisor and she was wonderful. And she helped me. We decided to we went to a training for because since we worked with all ages and I worked in the schools and I worked in the clinic, we went to a training by Michelle Garcia Winner. And she is in charge and uh, the owner of the social thinking curriculum. Yes. She's out of California. She is really fabulous in my opinion. <laughs> yes. And I learned her curriculum. I went to multiple trainings of hers. I actually got to meet her a few times. She would never remember that, but I definitely remember it. <laughs> yeah, you did. You stalked her at Asha. We all yeah. remember that. <laughs> stalked her at Asha in Chicago. <laughs> Amy oh and Brittany got to watch me like act like I casually ran into her when really I'd like followed her around the whole day just to That's meet her. So amazing. <laughs> In the speech therapy world, you're like I like the people that you're like your celebrities are other speech therapists, which is just hilarious at times. The author of dysphagia, drugs and dysphagia. I got to meet him. And when I met him, I was like, I was like, he was at Asha in his motor scooter. And I was like, don't run down the older man in the motor scooter. But like, I did. And I was like, oh, God, don't get run over by the man in the motor scooter. But like, yes. I feel that. Oh yeah, oh. I waited. I like waited <laughs> yeah. for everyone to leave her session. I hadn't gone to it, and I like waited for everyone to leave her session, and then like was like acting like I was gonna go throw something away, and just like happened to run into her, and I was like, oh wow, I just went to your <laughs> session, yeah. and it was I can so vouch lovely. for that. She hundred one hundred percent did that. Yes, I watched <laughs> it. <laughs> That's the so, long story short, what 
watch out, Michelle. If we ever see you at a conference, watch out. (laughs) Yeah, no, but see, the difference is we're going out for cocktails afterwards. So, like, let's be legit here. (laughs) If I ever do it to you, you'll be like, join her. Let's be real. You probably followed me around all day. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) I will see you on November, whatever it is. Oh, it's the boy's birthday. Is it the 17th? I'm lecturing on my husband's birthday. I'm a fantastic wife. I'll be two states away. I'll order him pizza. He'll be fine. (laughs) Okay. okay, But so Michelle Garcia winner, I have her book. I want to one day meet her and have her on the podcast, but like, she's so amazing. I'm intimidated to ask her to be on. So I feel that. Yeah. She is. You could just try to go to something and accidentally run into her, in quotation, <laughs> accidentally run into her like I did, and maybe then it would work out. She is lovely. She is somebody that I think what I really enjoy and what I really enjoy about everything that even that Amy and Brittany and you, Michelle, have talked about is I really love people who are pioneers in areas where like it's not popular or it's like people are too nervous to go outside of this like quote unquote box that we make of like, you're supposed to do therapy this way. And people are like, well, wait, you don't have to do therapy that way. Or maybe we need to address this, or maybe this has never been thought of, or let's think of it this way. And I feel like something that kind of, you know, grabbed my attention with her is there was really no curriculum. And I use that kind of loosely because she was really big on, you know, how do I do evidence-based practice? Or people are constantly coming after me about where's the evidence, where's the evidence? And she was like, it's going to take some time. Or do you know how, how difficult it might be to do evidence-based in terms of social skills? And I feel like she was the first one, and she has, she has done studies since then, and she has some fabulous stuff. Socialthinking.com is her website, but she has some fabulous stuff out there now that it was an area that wasn't a really big area to have a curriculum in and she developed one and she pioneered that area. I feel like there was, you know, others before her, but she really ran with it and then took it out on the, took it out on the road and has done so many trainings and provided actual things to do in terms of a curriculum in the area of social skills. So I've gone, like I said, a couple a couple of her trainings. And one area that I had to do, which we're talking about kind of adapting, is typically her stuff is for individuals age four through adult with solid language and learning abilities. Well, I didn't always have individuals who had what you would say solid language abilities. They were individuals that, you know, had intellectual disabilities, but I really felt strongly that I could use a lot of her vocabulary and a lot of her curriculum to teach individuals. And you had to play that fine line of like, I didn't want to use cartoon characters. I didn't want to use, you know, with some of my adults and some of them, it was really super helpful, but a lot of her vocabulary in terms of like expected and unexpected and teaching giving it actual, you know, words to actions with these adults. I was like, let's adapt it to their life. And my biggest thing is just as Amy and Brittany were talking about, and like we've said, is I have always strongly felt that therapy has to be functional. And I'm thinking like, how do I adapt this and then make it functional? Like I, we are trying to teach social skills and then how they go out and they use them in their daily everyday life. So how do I keep that mindset and keep it realistic? Sitting with me (laughs) one-on-one 
yes, that's going to be important to learn the concepts. So I would start with that. We would teach all the concepts. And then it was like, okay, now we need to go out and practice these concepts and learn from our, our, what we've learned and what we've done. So it was a really interesting time trying to teach concepts because you wanted to give the verbiage to the actions and then taking it and actually functionally using it. So a few things that we did, for example, was we had a group of women and they were all going out to get jobs with either in the community or within our adult day programs. And we had a breakfast morning group once a week with them. And we would do these concepts and we would, we would learn all the verbiage and we wouldn't be functional. So for example, I was getting married at the time and these Wait, women- Wait, you're the bride in the picture? That was Brittany. That was Brittany's wedding. <laughs> Oh, okay. All right. I'm trying to put everybody together in the picture. I got married before that and she was – they all threw me a wedding shower. So the other speech therapist I did the group with had kind of kept it a little bit of a secret, but she took all the concepts that we did and turned it into a functional life thing, you know, throwing a wedding shower for somebody and what what that is and what we do. And everybody had a job and everybody, the right things to say during it and the way we interact during it. And they throw me the most beautiful wedding shower. And to this day, it is still one of my favorite memories of my career. So kind of just using those functional everyday things. Another one was I we had a cooking group with my high schoolers and we learned how to cook. And then we would follow a recipe and we would set up a store where they'd have to go to the store and order you know, or look at their list and what they needed and interacting with the cashier and asking where things are and then making the recipe and then somebody would be the server and somebody would be the person that lives at the restaurant. So just keeping everything as functional as possible, but using these concepts and then implementing them in a functional setting. So it was something that I continue to really enjoy and carry over. And it's something that has always been really, really special to me to be able to do this. This is so near and dear to my heart because that's my uncle, not my uncle, but that's her uncle, Matthew Monster. He goes to an adult, my husband's special needs brother, he goes to the adult day facility and he has little works. I mean, he does his little jobs and he finds meaning and purpose there. And he so desperately wants to engage at home when we're, when we come, when we visit, when we play, but I mean, comedically, he always ends in time out with the children, right? Because like they don't know how to share. I mean, he's cognitively about eight to 10. So the boys are all kind of tripping on each other right now in this age range. So <laughs> you have the 45-year-old bald man and then the almost seven and almost nine-year-old and all three of them are stair-stepped in time out on the wall and nobody's happy. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the social, I mean, it's funny because this is our life, but it's the social skills piece for him. And that's the, if you go through a script, if you go through a structure, he can get it. But there's no speech pathologist in that rural area that works with adults with intellectual disabilities, mm-hmm. much less adults with intellectual disabilities focusing on pragmatics. And I wonder, my in-laws have done amazing. He is a phenomenal human being. But I just wonder what more joy he could obtain in in the interactions and going to the grocery store because he's he's vaccinated. He's, he was very proud that he was fully vaccinated. It was like a thing <laughs> to do. Like when he, he 
he was like, everybody was clapping for me. And all they did was make me miss my show when it hurt. And then like a couple weeks later, he goes, I can go places again. And we were like, yes, this is why you got vaccinated. Buddy. Yeah. <laughs> like, it was so funny. It was like, why were they clapping? I did not need that much clapping. <laughs> like, trying to, like... But again, it circles back around to like the social the social skills, like if we could, I mean, just how much more joy he would get from those interactions as opposed to like us having to like rehash and break it apart and then put it back together. On the yes. Oh my God. That was, that was so funny. Oh, oh man. My face hurts to laugh because they put too much Botox in it last week. Dang. That's middle age in a nutshell. <laughs> It's, it's something I've given some thought to. I'm not going to lie. So. Dude, I love it, but it wasn't my normal lady doctor. I got her husband and I was like, do you have the roadmap for the wrinkles on my face? <laughs> we could call it that. And I was like, you're not as funny as her. But I like, luckily, I socialed well enough to keep that thought internally because yes. I really could have done a number on the roadmap, but like, case or all. it's all right. It'll relax back again in apparently three months. We're fine. But um, <laughs> I digress. <laughs> it's something that I think social skills for those, I think something that in my career, like I said, right now I'm in the preschool setting and I, I love that as well. But something that I really loved about working with that population, and there's some wonderful therapists out there who work with adults, but I always felt like I think it's getting better, but maybe it's something we need to talk more about. I always felt like, you know, you were giving all these supports all through school. You know, you have your IEP and you're, you're, you have your evaluations and then you graduate. And then what? You know, and I felt like in that time of my life, it was really important to me. And I thought like it was doing some good work in terms of this is providing individuals who after high school were just kind of forgotten. I mean, they just, it was just kind of like, okay, you know, they have their residential housing, they have, you know, and it was, but wait, their only thing that's holding them back are their social skills to go work somewhere. I mean, and there was other things, but you know, we had, we had girls being like working somewhere and be like, I started my period today is what they would tell the person. <laughs> like that would, would be like, no, can't do that. No, 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 can't no. do that. Like, like no, no. Um, or they would just sit and talk about all the drama going on in their house. And I'm like, no, 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 no. So it was kind of I'm like, you're just trying to sell this. But it it was something that I felt like, what an important skill that maybe isn't always thought of as important or a service that's not always there. So I felt very, very lucky that I was given the chance to work with that population. And it was something that was not always the easiest. I mean, there were things that, you know, with some of our concrete literal thinkers, they'd be like, well, it's not that way. So why would I say it? Or I don't feel that way. Why would I say it? And I'm like, okay, you got to fake it till you make it sometimes, bud. Like you just gotta, but it was an opportunity that I feel like was a great great thing. And I think the biggest thing I learned from it was, and I've carried on to the rest of my practice is, you know, I always felt like I had to do therapy a certain way. Like it had to be this way, or, and this is the way you do therapy. And I think as I've grown in through that experience, I'm like, 
it doesn't have to be one certain way. Go with what is working. Go with what you, of course, what is research and evidence-based and what is going to be practical and helpful, but go with what is real. Not always sitting at a table one-on-one is going to be the most functional thing for somebody or the therapy that you're doing. Go with what feels like this is going to help. You know, this is what's going to be what is needed for this individual or for this group or what needs to be at this current moment. And I think that I really took that away from that experience. I'm just going back to, I wonder what family drama my brother-in-law shares. (laughs) (laughs) The things I heard with with some of my my adults I worked with was really interesting. (laughs) It was never a dull day. (laughs) Yeah. I found out that one of the uncles, his name really isn't Uncle Dick. But like they call him that because like he's kind of a dick, but his real name's Richard. And so <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I mean, that's like the G-rated version of that. But like now I'm just kind of like, you know, I'm just wondering if we're going to make it. Okay. <laughs> Ladies, y'all, we have covered all of the things from tallywhacker jokes to um, starting with and concluding with. So there is that. Um, clearly, there are multiple boy sons afoot with just a couple of girls to throw in to round out the mix. But um, thank you. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today and for spending the time with everyone and for shining your light on your most favored professional growing. Because that's, y'all, if you're listening to this and you're newer in your career, you're the clinician that you are today, the fear and the doubts that you have today. I promise you're going to take the course, you're going to meet the speaker. Because again, every single one of these women mentioned a profound course, that profound moment where they critically assessed their skills, that aha moment clicked, and then bam, they were ready. They were ready to be open to change. And that's hard to be open to change and then being willing to embrace it. But like, that's kind of the takeaway point. When you have that professional intersection, when you have that professional overlap and that encounter, using it to grow. So, ladies, thank you for letting us stand on the shoulders of y'all, folks. Where can they find you? at? Um, give us all of the social media, all the follows. Where do we go? Sure, that's my job. Take it away, so, <laughs> <laughs> so we are at Cup of Council Podcast on Instagram. We also have a Facebook group. And then we are on all of the platforms, iTunes, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Spotify, all of them. Yeah. Check us out. And we don't just do speech topics. We also do a lot of mommy topics and friendship. And it's kind of a little smorgasbord of a podcast. A little bit of everything, yes. Mm -hmm. Love this. While you're there, folks, make sure that you um, hit them up. Give them some five stars, a lovely Apple podcast review. As always, love it when you um, check out at First Bite, uh, leave a podcast review there. Don't forget Chasing the Swallows available on Amazon. And I love it when you leave a review there. It was not the freshman or grad school 40, but that was definitely a book 15. But I, <laughs> I look back at pictures like pre-writing, post-writing, and I was like, ooh. There was stress mimosas, but um, <laughs> yeah, but um, check us out. Give us the feedback and gentle reminder. If you're at ASHA this year live, um, check Dr. Reva Barwell with Savories and myself. We're presenting on Fridays at ASHA at 11 a.m. I don't really know the room, but we'll be there. Also, make sure that um, you check in at the 
speechtherapypd.com booth and bring a copy of Chasing the Swallow because I'll be there. Don't quite know yet when, but I will be there and would love to see So as always, we appreciate you ladies. Oh my God, you're amazing. And thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The Alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And uh, for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. Okay. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a uh, lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders, that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 
and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.